Physics World. Hello and welcome to the Physics World Stories podcast. I'm Andrew Glester and in this episode we're going to explore the developing role of open source software in academic research. A feature in this month's edition of the Physics World magazine written by Chintia Rao entitled Standing on the Shoulders of Programmers explores this topic with Achintia speaking to some of the key players in open software in the physics community. Later in the podcast, we'll hear how open software is involved in some of the biggest questions in physics, such as the search for dark matter. And first, here's Kirsty Whitaker of the Alan Turing Institute. I lead the Tools, Practices and Systems Research Programme at the Alan Turing Institute, which is the UK's National Institute for Data Science and Artificial Intelligence. And I'm really interested in um, the open infrastructure that we need to break down silos to allow people to share information across different domains of research. So that's thinking about um, data standards or API standards. It's thinking about sharing code, finding ways to um, reuse other people's work under, for example, open source licenses to make as as a sort of interconnected ecosystem of output. But I'm most interested in the the people and the collaborative skills that we need to have people work across those different areas and, and connect up the knowledge that we have so that we can generate ideas that no individual would be able to do by themselves. This idea of the importance of coding, how software development is embedded in what we do now in the physical sciences, might have crept up on some people. I think a lot of people wrote command line sort of instructions, and they might have linked some of those things together to call them scripts, maybe. And some of the most sort of fancy researchers might have been writing some functions so that you could reuse those scripts multiple times but actually thinking about building something into a tool that others may want to use um, for, for their project for a different project or for for future and as yet unknown research I think even that concept has really exploded and expanded in the last um, 10 or 15 years and it brings with it some really interesting challenges around gatekeeping who can write software. So I think the the term software, the term sort of software engineer, software developer, those are still very intimidating for a lot of people who probably actually do have <laughs> quite a lot of skills to write down and document um, in, in code, but also in human readable form the steps that you need to do in order to reproduce an analysis. So I think there there are sort of really interesting expansions into software where people have thought, no, actually, this stuff is is really valuable and, and I should make sure that people can use it and reuse it. But I think we still have a long way to go for everyone to see their work as fitting into that kind of space. The idea of open science, being open with your data, isn't some fringe idea. From CERN, here's Tim Smith. I work in the IT department where I lead a group that is responsible for a diverse set of user-facing services that uh, help um, power the interactions, the collaborations, the uh, the desktops, the applications uh, of the 
average person at CERN and uh, who works with and for CERN. Uh, so within that specifically, some of our tools are to power open science. So I'm a keen supporter of, of anything to do with open uh, source, open data, open science. And our services in particular power um, the drive of transforming many of our processes uh, into a more open process that's more um, captures more of the information automatically and publishes and makes available to others more easily. We have services that we've built for ourselves that help us publish our own software, help us share our own meetings and, and do uh, things in an open manner to do reproducible science. But some of those we've also generalized and made available to, uh, to people outside of CERN as, as um, if you like, as an inspiration, as a catch-all, different things, different aspects you can see. Basically, um, we've managed to solve a problem for ourselves and we're making advances in open science through the, these services. And we want to make sure that, uh, that others can also profit from the same advances, even if they don't uh, have uh, the means, um, um, the facilities to, to do it themselves. So Zenodo is an example of something that we've made available to other people that is, is um, if you like, a clone of things that we found useful ourselves. Um, but it doesn't presuppose any particular science, any particular data format, any particular um, usage. It's there to inspire people to, to share and to, to build up on. Clearly not everybody has the workforce available to CERN. And that's where a dedication to open science and open software can really benefit the wider physics community. Zenodo is a, is a platform um, which anybody around the world, any researcher can upload something that they consider a research object worth sharing. Just in case you're wondering, a research object is basically any piece of scholarly information or online tool used in academic studies. To help other researchers discover and cite them, they're often assigned something known as a digital object identifier or DOI for short. So the platform publishes it, it issues a, a DOI and makes a guarantee to keep it uh, forever and makes um, it available for download to anybody that, uh, that needs it, wants it, for other people to cite it, to, uh, to reference it, to, to, to use it in any way conceivable. Um, so Zenodo so was um, built such that this sharing aspect of objects, which are not easy to manage typically for, for the average institute, um, could be easily shared by our big data services. So it, ma it makes them uh, our services accessible to everyone and easy to use um, so that anybody can access an object which, which may be small, may be large, may be complex, um, which they consider part of their research uh, outputs. Katie Bauman is an assistant professor at Caltech University whose work involves computer imagery, perhaps most famous for her role as part of the Event Horizon Telescope team in the reveal of the first image of a black hole. It was with the help of Katie's algorithms that Katie and her fellow researchers used open source software to convert astronomical data into that historic final image. The Event Horizon Telescope was initiated over a decade ago with the goal to take the very first image of a black hole. And so I wasn't part of the collaboration at the time. I joined 
eight years ago, going on eight years ago, seven, eight years ago. Um, but it was going on much longer before I was a part of it. As I said, the goal of the collaboration was to take the very first picture of a black hole. And there are two black holes that we know of that are biggest on the sky. That's the black hole in M87, the galaxy M87. And then another one's at the center of our own Milky Way galaxy called Sagittarius A star. M87 is much farther away from us, but a much, much bigger black hole. So it appears about the same size on the sky as Sagittarius a star, but they're still very far away from us and very compact. So that means that they appear very, very small in the sky. So on the sky, they appear about, like I like to say, um, they're about the same size as a grain of sand if that grain of sand is in New York and I'm viewing it from where I am in California. And so uh, taking a picture of something that small is really hard because we're limited by um, diffraction limits, which says that in order to see something smaller and smaller at a particular wavelength, we need to make an aperture of our telescope bigger and bigger. And so it turns out that for the black, those black holes, the biggest, the ones that are biggest on the sky and at the wavelength that we need in order to pierce through all the dust and gas and stuff in order to see this light around the event horizon, we would require a, a telescope the size of the entire Earth. And so obviously it wasn't possible to build an Earth-sized telescope, but instead what we do is the next best thing is we have telescopes that are all across the Earth, and we put in specialized equipment in each one of them and collect light simultaneously from each of those little telescopes, uh, record it onto petabytes of hard drives, and then fly them to a common location and use our computers to kind of act like the lens to make the picture. My primary contribution is in developing the algorithms that we use to take that data from these disjoint telescopes from around the world and um, try to identify what is the image or set of images that would result in those measurements that we've seen. So the imaging process of how do you make an image from this data and how do you validate the uncertainty of that image. We released the very first picture of a black hole, the black hole in M87, and we're working really hard to get a picture of a black hole in, in Sagittarius A star and eventually even a movie because Sagittarius A star is actually evolving on the time scale of just minutes. So it would be awesome if we could actually see a movie of the gas kind of flowing in towards the black hole over the time scale of a night. It certainly would be, and hopefully that will be the subject of a future episode of the Physics World Stories podcast. But Katie's work is not solely based in revealing the images of black holes. My group works on a variety of different types of problems in computational imaging and uh, physics-based inverse problems, um, ranging in applications from uh, medical imaging um, to astronomy kind of applications. So um, one of the things that I guess I'm um, best known for right now is helping um, in the international team that made the first image uh, that captured the first image of a black hole. And that was, uh, you know, the first result, the first image ever of a black hole, but it's kind of just the beginning. And so we've also been working on developing new kinds of methods and uh, also in, uh, improving the telescope array that we use to collect the data um, for the future of black hole imaging to to extract more information in the future. Um, but my group doesn't just work on black hole stuff. What I like to describe my group as, or, or like kind of a tagline I think of as my group is for imaging the invisible. So trying to try to go after things you think of as impossible to image or to see or to measure with traditional kind of sensors and think about how we can use, um, inject computation and structure and domain knowledge into the problem, use ideas from machine learning and AI, 
blend all these ideas together in order to extract something that's hidden originally in data. Um, and so for the black hole, like that's obvious, you know, that, that this was like, we needed to build this Earth-sized telescope and um, it was really sparse and noisy data. And so we had to develop a variety of different kinds of algorithms that allowed us to pull that information out. But there's a lot of kinds of problems that share very similar, at a high level, you can think of them in a very, very similar way. So other problems that my group works on is like medical imaging. Like if you go in and you get an MRI scan of your brain or your abdomen or something, like the, the data that the MRI scanner takes is not using a camera like you shoot on your phone or with a regular camera. It, it collects indirect measurements and then algorithms are used to interpret those measurements and recover a picture from those indirect measurements, just like we have to do for the black hole image. Um, other things that my group works on is like on um, another application we've been getting in in um, the last couple of years is seismology applications where we want to see under the ground to identify like where earthquakes are happening and the structure of the ground below the surface. And again, we can't, you know, we can only bore holes a certain distance into the ground and we can't do it everywhere. So we need to use these indirect measurements, the shaking on the surface um, to recover a picture of what is beneath the ground. So these, all these problems at first glance, they might seem very different, but really they all uh, resemble, they have the same structure. And, and we use a variety of different kinds of tools to get at uh, these different problems. And obviously it depends a lot on the application and the domain. Um, and one aspect that you really, that allows us to extract this information is by using domain knowledge. So, you know, if we just look at this junk of data, this massive data that is all like noise and stuff, it, it, you look at it and you say, there's no way to pull any kind of structure out of this. But if we know something about the physics of the situation, how light is propagating through space or how, you know, an earthquake, the wave that, that it forms, how it moves to the earth, if we inject that kind of uh, knowledge into the problem, then we can build that structure in and use that to pull out additional information. But usually that's still not enough. And so that's where different kinds of methods, especially uh, more recently, I, computational tools from machine learning helps us to get further. So oftentimes we have to eject other kinds of knowledge. For instance, in the black hole imaging problem, it's what do images look like? You know, do images look like static noise or do they have some sort of structure? And we don't necessarily want to impose something about what black hole images look like, just the nature of images in general. And so things that you can impose are things like the image is smooth or compact or something like this. In other kinds of applications, you might have more knowledge. So for instance, in an MRI, a medical imaging application, we do have a knowledge of what brain, brains look like in general. So even though we not, might not know what your brain looks like, we know generally what the structure of brains looks like, and we can impose more structured kind of information on that. And machine learning can help a lot. And traditionally, we do hand design kind of um, structure that we impose into the problem. Um, but more recently, we've been developing ideas to learn this kind of structure from different collections of data and merge that with our knowledge of the physics and the domain knowledge from the problem in order to pull out the information. Other things that we use new tools for are things like uncertainty quantification. So, you know, oftentimes the measurements that we make, they do not form an image themselves. They just give us hints as to what the image is. And we have to solve what is called an inverse problem to recover an image from those measurements. But oftentimes there is missing information, either caused by lots of noise on the data or there's just missing measurements that we don't have. Um, and that means often that you actually have um, 
that you have multiple solutions that are possible. And we don't know the exact true one, but we can try to quantify what is the uncertain, what is our most likely image and what's the uncertainty. And so we're developing tools in my group to help us improve um, uncertainty quantification so that we don't just get a single image out, but we get a whole distribution of images out. When doing talks about that reveal of the black hole image, Katie has been keen to mention the 22,953 software engineers whose contributions to the world were indirectly involved in that first image of a black hole. Um, For sure, like we would be getting nowhere if we didn't have these kind of tools that other people in the community have built up and have made um, free to use. And and so we're very thankful for for everything that other people have done. And, you know, people, even since the black hole image, we published that one a couple years ago, people have even contributed to our own code code bases a little bit. And so it's exciting, not even tangentially contributing, but actually in our own, you know, making changes and stuff, I think is really exciting to see the broader community getting a little more engaged. Of course, when the team made their announcement, they shared the code that they'd put together on the code sharing website, GitHub. The main goal of it is transparency, reproducibility, and having other people be able to test and make sure that, you know, things, uh, if they you know, if they modify the methods or they look into the code to make sure that they agree with what we've done. Um, And so we wanted to be as transparent as possible with such an important um, result. I think that's very important going forward. I'm really happy to see that over the last decade or so that this has become more the norm um, that people release their code and their data, although it is very hard in a lot of situations too to do that. But I hope that there is more of a trend to doing that. So, you know, we've had since then people who download the different pipelines, run the code, modify the code, make their own algorithms using different kinds of methods. And I think that's really important to build up, uh, you know, to to make sure that the results you have are reproducible. As Katie says, it's not always straightforward to share your data and your code. It depends a lot, right? So for instance, like if I'm working with medical data, I just, it might just be illegal to, <laughs> to release that data. Um, and, um, and so you all have to think about privacy concerns and things like this um, at one level, but also there is like people, you know, they spend their lives collecting this data sometimes and they want the opportunity to keep it their work to themselves so that they have time to analyze it and stuff before it is made public. So, you know, it's, it's hard uh, for the methods that we've created. We felt, okay, we're at a stage where these methods can be used um, perhaps in other applications. And we wanted it to be open because we want these ideas to be improved on and we want people to use them in different applications and, and as well as verify that they worked that we use them properly in the black hole imaging. But there are cases where, you know, the results that people are using or the data people are using, they're spending their lifetime getting, right? And they want the opportunity to analyze that data first and maybe it hasn't fully been analyzed, things like this. Yeah, luckily that hasn't been a big case in my my work so far. For some, there might be the fear of releasing their code because of other people online attacking, maybe it's not beautiful enough maybe it's not put together in the way that they'd like it to be well yeah I I definitely I mean I had those fears myself but I had to kind of get over them and I was uh you know there was a lot of uh I don't guess you know mean things said on the internet and things about my code and everything like that which you know I wasn't always uh I didn't always 
do the best software engineering and stuff. But I feel like it was more important that we released it than hide it. And, and um, mostly we want to figure out if there are mistakes. And, you know, with almost certainty, there are errors and bugs. But the fact that we had um, multiple pipelines that were able to achieve the same result and we tested it in many different ways, we tried to say, okay, well, we know there, there has to be bugs out there. There are always bugs. But hopefully all these tests tell us that, you know, they're not affecting the results we get enough to make a, a big a big difference. So, yeah, I think, you know, it's something that, oh, it's nerve wracking to put your code out there, especially when people are inspecting it and going down deep into things that you did years and years ago. But I think that um, it's important that we get over that and we just make are, are still transparent with the work that we do. Katie has some advice for those people who might be struggling to release their code. I I think what I would say, and I I say this to my own students, is like, you know, it's very important to have good code and to have tutorials on how to use your code and things like that. And you kind of have to get over this fear of people going through it and, you know, make sure you're comfortable with it at some level, but, you know, you're never going to be totally comfortable always, but that's okay. And I think putting your code out there is so important for, for reproducibility. When people put their code online, usually people trust the papers more um, if they're able to run it and if they're able to look into the code. And it also means that they're able to use those approaches that you've developed on new data and um, compare it to new methods. And, And usually that is a good thing, not a bad thing for you, right? Even if another method beats you, that's fine. You're part of this progress, right? And and I think people usually like to hide their data and they say, oh, this is mine. I want time to analyze it. I want, I don't want, uh, I want to use my code. I want to only be the one, only one who can use my code. But actually by putting your stuff out there and having other people wanting to use it, that kind of uh, amplifies your work so much more than you ever would be able to by yourself. So I think that uh, people are wrong and they think, and when they're thinking, if I keep it to myself, that it, it it will give me, you know, more recognition. Actually, you usually get more recognition by releasing that one for transparency and reproducibility, but then two is that people trust your results and they want to use those methods and other kinds of applications and they become, you know, they, they're almost working for you at that point. Something that Katie mentioned there is very important to anybody in any line of work. And for scientists, it's no different. And that is, of course, recognition. When we released the Event Horizon Telescope publications, I was a a paper coordinator for one of them, and we made the decision to cite some of these open source libraries that we used. And a number of developers for those libraries emailed us, thanking us so much for even just for citing them. You know, something that we didn't realize how important it was to them. Um, And a lot of times these are just completely, because they're so standard, people don't cite them. Um, But I think it means a lot to to the contributors of those libraries that we do acknowledge the the work that was done in there and how important it was the foundation for us to build other things on. So that's a, a small step. I think we also just need to change our perception of what it means to have a contribution in an, ac- an academic contribution. There are, there are a lot of things, a lot of times that you need to build up to get to a certain state. And um, we need to stop just recognizing the top most scientific achievement and also recognize all the steps that it got to get there. But I'm not sure that's a cultural change that we're going to have to do somehow. Another fascinating area of physics research, which has lent heavily on open source software, is the exploration and search for dark matter. Dr. Suchita Kulkarni leads a group on dark matter and neutrino phenomenology at the Institute of Physics 
of the University of Graz. Very precisely, my work intimately connects the abstract theoretical ideas with the practical world of experiments. It's my opinion, and this is very personal, of course, at this point, we should have done a bit more to actually acknowledge the work of tool developers. One of the biggest open source softwares that we use every day is Root. It's an open source software. It's it's absolutely fundamental for everything that you do in particle physics, and it's used by experimentalists and theorists alike. Traditionally, I think there have been very few positions which were given to software developers in the sense of, I give you this position because you wrote this fantastic tool. Okay. Traditionally, in the world of theory, the position has been given because you are a great theorist, not necessarily because you are a great tool developer or you are, you've done something which is important in the community of open source. I think what has changed in the recent years is, in fact, the understanding that this needs to happen. And this is a good thing. Okay. Uh, for example, recently there was an announcement about a software position, if I remember it right, in the FCC collaboration, which is something new. Okay, so this is a position that is dedicated for developing the FCC software, uh, and I think this is this is fantastic because there somebody who has the expertise, somebody who has the knowledge, can efficiently build that tool and get recognized for it, which is good. And that's the career stability that we as young researchers would want. Having said that, the thing that has still not happened is recognition of young researchers in the context of open source software. Given the collaborative nature of physics, it might surprise some people to hear about this reticence to share the recognition with the software developers. But it's not something that necessarily has surprised Suchita. That has fundamentally to do with our our own romanticized version of physics being a lone wolf field, right? That you want to have a leader, that you want to have one person who's going to make all the breakthroughs and who's going to advance the field, who's going to bring new insights. At the heart of it, physics has always worked in a collaborative manner, that people have always built their research on the shoulders of somebody else. But when it comes to giving credit, it has always been sort of this person. We have always had a painting of a single contributor, attribution of discovery to a single person. This goes in this person's name. And that that kind of mindset, I think, is what stops us from recognizing the value of being collaborative, being a team member. You write a recommendation letter, you don't say this person is a great team player. You write a recommendation letter, you say this person is a great leader. That you put the value of leadership above the value of teamwork, to me, is a problematic thing. Because to me, both are important. You should be able to lead, but you should also be able to get along with people. And you should also be able to motivate people to do their jobs. And this is where I think we've had the, 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 the contradiction between recognizing the value of teamwork and benefiting from the value of teamwork. We have benefited always, but we've not recognized it so far. Here's Kirsty Whitaker from the Alan Turing Institute again. If everybody recognized all of the shoulders that they were standing upon every time they sat down to start doing any part of their work and they they saw 
that what has been traditionally seen as invisible labor, we, we'd get there immediately, right? So it, it definitely requires kind of everyone to participate. It's a huge cultural shift that we have to achieve to break down this idea of a sort of individual genius uh, researcher who is br both brilliant in and of themselves and also capable at doing all of the different parts of a research process. There's actually no one that truly is brilliant at all aspects of the of the research process. You can sort of find those people if you go all the way back to like gentlemen scientists who are sort of paying for themselves to do interesting work in the sort of fourth room of their mansions and then they're writing their wives are writing long form letters to each other to the other scientists in the same position to share that information so way way back you can find those sorts of people but nowadays everyone's good at a particular chunk and then they receive support on different areas and we have not sort of developed a, a, a really sort of adept way of thinking about how many people are playing into that process so I think that's one that's my real answer is like everybody has to play a part in recognizing how much we learn from each other. Now, there's another one, which is cite the freaking software, <laughs> like just cite it. I think one of the reasons why the black hole image, that suite of papers when they came out was so exciting is the one on, on visualization, which is one of the ones that I use in some of my talks that I give, like it literally cites every one of the packages that they use. It cites NumPy, it cites Matplotlib, it cites all of the, so it cites AstroPy, it has all of these various different packages that very few people dig all the way down into. And I feel like that's a really, really important aspect as well of when we start to sort of write down and acknowledge all of the tools that we're using, you then build a sort of ecosystem where there is more evidence for the fact that we've been using those tools. The fact that they did that extra step of acknowledging all of those people, it means so much. Katie Bowman spoke as a keynote speaker at the most recent uh, Chan Zuckerberg Initiative's Essential Open Source Software for Science um, grantees workshop. And everyone just lost it. Everyone like loved, loved that presentation so much, loved the science, loved the like, joy that she brought when she was presenting about the the work and the science but also the those last few slides of talking about just how many people sort of contributed into it it meant so much and it and it, and it would mean so much if so many other people did it as well with any cultural shift like this it helps if everybody does their bit to make it simpler i think it needs to be the case that people who build those tools also make it easy for others to acknowledge them so making sure that each of those GitHub repositories has a sentence in the readme file that says, when you use this code, please acknowledge it by saying, you know, whatever it is, citing the paper, citing the code base, make sure that it's got a DOI on there to make sure that people are able to reference, reference the version. I think there's some pieces of work. I don't want to put all of the responsibility on the individuals who are writing the code, but there's a little piece of extra work that the, the people in those open source communities need to take on to make their code really easy and to encourage people both to use it and also to recommend it to others. Inside of that is where you think about what is the need for a diverse 
community who are building these tools, we should never really be relying on individuals who have the software engineering or the physics theory or the mathematics to be able to implement the code. We also need people who are going to be able to package it up, write the documentation, go out and give engaging talks to make sure that everyone knows that the code exists. To let go of the idea that you're giving away this knowledge for free, because actually you're giving away knowledge that was in many cases paid for by taxpayers. So it wasn't really, you know, it's not, it's not sort of proprietary work. It's work that should belong to the people who paid for it. And in the vast majority of cases, although the code bases are openly available, almost everyone will want to collaborate with someone who knows that code base really, really well. If the code base has a clear ask inside of the readme file, for example, saying, if you want to collaborate with us, please get in touch via whatever the contact method is. There are huge professional sort of career trajectory positive outcomes that can come from saying, I want to work more closely with other people in this space. And I think the more code that people put out there, the more opportunities. They often end up with so many opportunities <laughs> that they're too busy and they find it difficult to balance all of them. But I think as we, they, they, the opportunities are almost always there. It's making sure that people know how to both ask for what they need, whether that's money, whether that's an extension on their contract, or to say, no, you can use the code, but I'm not able to provide that support. And there's a lot of mentorship that we need to provide for people who are building that code to give them those sort of collaborative skills to allow them to balance their time appropriately. Another part of a potential solution is JOS, the journal for open source software. I'm Juan Jovazan. I work as a developer of scientific software and I'm an editor of Astrophysics for the Journal of Open Source Software. And that's basically it. I also collaborate with a group of research on astrophysics here in Madrid. So, yeah, my main domain, uh, this is a mix of uh, open science and open source software. The Journal of Open Source Software is basically a hack on the system, right? So there are a lot of people doing a big chunk of job of work in, in scientific projects that when the papers get published, they are not uh, listed as authors or whatever. And, and in academia, the, the main uh, credit coin is the citations. So if you don't have articles, if you don't publish, you're, you're stuck there. So, uh, there's a lot of uh, movement, uh, I guess we can call it uh, the open science movement, trying to change all the environment in this in this world. But just tries to uh, be like an immediate solution uh, with the with the system as it is now. Like, okay, you are not giving credit to software developers because they don't publish papers, so let's publish papers on software about software libraries. So. Uh, developers can, be, can, can get citations on that. So the main idea is if you develop a, if you have a software library that is using research, you, you, you send us, you send it to, to yours. But the idea is that you don't need to work a lot on the paper. We, in JOS, uh, the papers in JOS are mainly short, one, two pages where you describe uh, the software and what we 
um, what we peer review is the quality of the software. Like there is, is well written. Uh, if you do any performance claim, we check it. Uh, it's well document, documented. Uh, it has test is, uh, so, uh, we check the quality of the software and make you, uh, make it easy for you to publish a paper on it. So in, in any other, um, research that is using your your software it can be you can cite that of course where software differs from a scientific paper is that it's often being constantly updated when you send your your paper on a software to yours once you are your paper is published that also include like a snapshot or the of the actual code so you you tag a new version and that's the version that is uh, associated to that paper um so if you do uh, big changes, like you release major versions after that, you can send another another paper to yours. If there are just minor versions, I mean, if you are in version 3.2 and you release the 3.3, uh, probably that won't be accepted, uh, will be rejected directly from yours. But if a couple of years later you release the version 5 and it, it, it has significant changes, or new features and the kind of things that is accepted into the process and is reviewed again. One area where this might become problematic is whether and where you draw a line in terms of the contribution that someone's made. Have they made just one comment in the code, which has fixed a huge bug, or have they made lots of comments, which has just sort of cleaned it up a bit? All these questions are like new questions that we, we still don't have an answer. Like we can imagine that it, it can be solved, but we don't know like how, because you're right. Like, you cannot create the, the same, the people, or Katie Bowman, like you cannot give her the same credit as someone who, who give, uh, I don't know, who write a documentation for the last of their libraries that she used, right? But, uh, but probably all those people in those different levels, they, they don't want or they don't need the same recognition. Maybe for us, I have you seen, for example, GitHub last month, they create like a batch with a symbol. When, when this rover uh, landed in Mars with a tiny helicopter there, they talk with NASA and they ask them to list all the libraries that were used for the code of the helicopter. And for all the people that made any contribution to any of those libraries, Right now in their GitHub profile page, they have a small batch. Maybe that's enough for the, for, from the thousand person to the, to the, to the bottom, right? Uh, I mean, we can think of levels of credit that we can use, but, but I think it's, it's a very valid question and it's an open question right now. But, uh, but I don't think it's hard to solve. No, I'm not a software developer and I don't have a page on GitHub. But if I was and my code had contributed to the Ingenuity helicopter flying around Mars at the moment, having a badge on that page to recognise that would certainly work for me. We heard from Tim Smith earlier about Zenodo, and they've also linked up with GitHub. For each different field, each different domain of science, the objects that they find most useful, what should they capture, what they exchange, what they analyse, may be different. For some, it may be a video. For some, it may be uh, pictures. For others, it may be uh, large data sets in different formats. But no matter what the data type of object is, always nowadays, it needs to be analyzed with software. 
And so to understand any of the research that's going on at the moment in the digital age, you essentially need both the, uh, the digital objects, the software, and the analysis uh, code, the, uh, the software. So we saw it as extremely important to be able to share um, both at the same time. Now, having said that, there are big ecosystems being built around enabling anybody, any developer, but specifically uh, scientific developers, to collaborate more on the software as they're building it, as they're doing their analyses. Platforms like GitHub are extremely popular and extremely powerful for this collaboration phase when you're building the research, when you're, you're performing the analyses. And what we wanted to do is help capture at the end of that collaborative phase, when it becomes um, more fixed and ready for publication, to take a snapshot and put it next to the data that's being published. So this link with, uh, with GitHub was extremely important to make it as easy as possible to move from the collaboration phase to the publication phase with essentially one click. And those contributions are, are wide and diverse. Um, they encompass all sorts of other things, not just the, the analysis process itself, which may be the data taking, the, the building of the detectors and the, the writing of the software, um, but also in the, uh, the outreach activities and, uh, and the training of the next generations and the training of future researchers and all sorts of different aspects. Many of our, um, our universities, many of our in research institutes are already starting to change their processes to acknowledge some of these other contributions um, and, and how it all contributes to the, uh, to the advancement of science. Um, I forgot other important things like, you know, contributions to the peer reviewing process and things like that, so and editorial processes. So there are many, many different ways which underpin our, our science and how open science does and should work. Uh, and all of those contributions uh, should be valued. So how we hope things like Zenodo help are giving mechanisms to capture this, uh, this, uh, this activity and this productivity and to expose and, uh, and to add value to it. So one thing we mentioned earlier was Joss. So I think it's extremely important that rather than just peer reviewing the last final conclusions and, and uh, words that describe a process, that we, sh we need to be peer reviewing more of the process itself. And necessarily there are different skill sets involved and therefore we need to break the process down such that the pe people that peer review each of the stages in a process are the experts on that process. So things like Josh are great because you can have a peer reviewing on a particularly important tool to make sure that really is producing in the best possible way the correct output using the correct mathematical models, for instance, um, to produce uh, a, a tool that can be used by a subsequent analysis. So I imagine in the future, Though all of these different elements can have their own level of peer reviewing by experts from different and diverse fields. And then the final peer reviewing will be able to rely on the fact that the underlying elements have already been peer reviewed. This also helps with the rewarding because then you can see where the contributions of different parts of a process um, have contributed not just to your analysis, but other analyses 
then the value, exposing the value of your contributions becomes easier because you have mechanisms to actually search in, in things like Synoda and find where, uh, where you had an impact. With open software and open science more widely becoming such an important part of academic research, it will be fascinating to see how the field develops. If you'd like to know more, I can highly recommend a Chintya Rao's feature in this month's Physics World magazine and on the Physics World website, physicsworld.com. And thank you very much to Achintia for sharing the interviews with us for this podcast. Next month, we'll be looking at alien technosignatures. And thank you very much for listening. Physics World.